Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Ken Combos Podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Jess Wade. Jess, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello everyone, my name is Jess and I'm Imperial College Research Fellow in the Department of Materials at Imperial College London where I study chiral materials and their application in electronic and spintronic devices. Mm. That's very cool. It's super cool, but I feel like a I'm I'm so terrified about this because I'm a, I'm not actually a chemist. I'm like an undercover physicist working so closely with chemists. I often forget that I'm not a chemist and I've not had the like extraordinary uh, organic synthesis training and all of this stuff that you've yeah. all had. So I kind of jump in at the end, grab the molecules and run. And and so I feel I feel <laughs> I feel like a fraud. Yeah, kind of like a thief feeling molecules and Right. Yeah, I guess one of the things like it kind of flows with the question that we had, because you said that in one of the descriptions on Twitter was uh, you're a Raman spectroscopy enthusiast. And, and we, uh, I mean, I, I don't know as much about Raman. So I was wondering whether you could explain it. Oh, so you want to know more about Raman? Sure. And your passion for it. <laughs> so it's my favorite characterization techniques. It's a, it's a vibrational spectroscopy based on the inelastic scattering of light. So you basically shine a laser of a particular wavelength, obviously, onto, onto your thin film or your molecule in a particular configuration. And you excite the molecule to a virtual excited state. So it doesn't go fully up to that electronically excited state, but it kind of hovers in a virtual excited state. And when it starts doing this, the, the atoms in your molecule start to vibrate. And for everyone who's not watching the recording, I'm, I'm, I'm vibrating my, my atom-like arms. And when, when, the, when the atoms start to vibrate, at particular energies, depending on what that bond is inside your molecule, you see the scatter of light that comes back. So you see that inelastic scatter of light. And thanks to the development of kind of amazing spectrometers to be able to measure it, we end up as scientists with a spectrum which has kind of Raman shift, so the energy of that light and then different peaks. And, and the peaks correspond to different chemical bonds. So it's kind of this really beautiful technique to really get a, a fingerprint of, of what's happening inside your molecule or your polymer. And you can use the spectrum to understand how it's changed in molecular order or how something's happened to it. Potentially it's degraded. If you're making something like a solar cell and you've left it out in the light, you might want to know which bonds are breaking. If you're making a LED and you're driving it for a while, you might want to know what's changed in the structure and how you can make that better for next time. So it's a really extraordinary kind of tool for understanding, well, lots of materials, but I'm particularly interested in how we can use it for conjugated organic materials. Oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, that's a lot for, you know, anyone that didn't know what ramen was. There you go. There's like a bite-sized kind of description, I guess. Yeah. We need some science in our podcast too. So It's so cool. And there's something to use it in things like airports because you can do screening of kind of transparent liquids. So if you're taking water in and there's always that silly part, although none of us have experienced it for the last 18 months, but that time when you get to the check-in and they're like, oh, you've got to throw away your brand new bottle of water or you've got to pour all of the precious, precious drink out of your, out of your drinking vessel. 
And if we could use something like a handheld Raman spectrometer, you'd be able to instantly know exactly what was in that liquid. So you could say, of course, you can go through if it's it's if it's not vodka or whatever other thing you're trying to pass. So 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 it's a really beautiful non-destructive technique for for characterizing lots and lots of different materials. And I love seeing it used in so many different sciences. I met a cool research. I know this isn't the point of the podcast, sorry, but I met a fantastic researcher from the Natural History Museum who was using Raman to look at the pigments in mollusks, like colorful mollusks. So shells, so beautiful, beautiful shells, and we can put them under our Raman spectrometer and tell you exactly what the pigment is and how it evolved from another pigment. So I'm just like having the best time ever on the 10th floor of, of the labs in South Kensington, kind of just running around, putting whatever under the Raman and seeing what happens. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. And for anyone who doesn't understand Raman, it's not the, not the Japanese cuisine, right? <laughs> no, but, but I mean, most, most people I've met who do ramen also enjoy ramen. <laughs> like when I, when I started my master's project, which was when I first, first dabbled in this beautiful technique, I was trained by a, a fantastic guy called David James, who was finishing his PhD. And when it was his birthday and I was a master's student, I was so determined to impress him and he'd taught me how to do ramen. And so I got him a voucher for a ramen bar in, in South Kensington as his <laughs> birthday present. And I honestly thought it was the funniest thing. I was like, I am a comedy genius. Like no one, <laughs> but now obviously <laughs> everyone just confuses them all the time. It's ramen with a, two A's, yeah. the spectroscopy. Whereas it's AE when it's the noodles. <laughs> now, now everyone is going to go and eat ramen after this. I know, episode. I'm definitely ordering ramen tonight. <laughs> Amazing. So I guess like touching on, you touched on your research briefly there. Could you kind of say maybe in a sentence or two, kind of what it is about your research you enjoy most? Oh, what is it about my research that I enjoy most? I I, <laughs> I think I enjoy everything so much. So so I work really closely with with all of these different chemists and material scientists. And I really love that idea, especially, you know, for all the chemists listening, that you can go from drawing out a molecule on, on, you know, whatever computational software you use, or just drawing a molecule out, and then go through that arduous process of synthesizing it for most of which I'm backstage for and don't have to get involved with and then and then translate that into a thin film or into some kind of solid state that you can then apply in a device and I just love that kind of sequence that it can be we're going to make this material oh we've made this material we're pretty sure we've made it we've done all these checks to make sure that we've made what we think we've made Let's try it out in a thin film. Let's understand how the molecules are arranged. Let's optimize how the molecules are arranged. And then let's put it in a device. And I just, I think it's such a kind of beautiful sequence of events when that happens. It's always exciting. So, so I love that. But, but more, it's just kind of, you know, that constant every day waking up with with curiosity and with questions like huh I might want to investigate that or that might be arranged in that way or maybe we could do this experiment or I just read this fantastic review from someone who I've never met in a part of the world I've never been to that might offer some insight on what we're working on and I feel this kind of yeah I feel so phenomenally lucky to have found a job where I feel that excited every day to do it yeah yeah I think that should be the goal for every person to, to find a job that, that makes you so passionate and enthusiastic. Like, I just love hearing you talk about it. It's just, you can, you can tell how enthusiastic you are and how much you love your job. And I think that that's like totally the, I know one of the things that 
everyone should keep in mind. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I think we're really privileged as scientists, right? Like to have that that kind of curiosity be your job, to be to be able to kind of wake up and go to sleep with all these questions in your head, to be able to work with people who are so phenomenally kind of creative and bright and switched on. And I think kind of, you know, I've managed somehow to to work with incredibly encouraging, supportive, magical, collaborative, kind of super focused on teamwork people. And I think that that's made it such an easy transition from being a student into being a scientist, that you're working with people who so want you and the project to succeed that every day you feel like it's great to be here. Mm-hmm. Amazing. 100%. I think uh, one of the, I guess, trade-offs for for being so enthusiastic and passionate about your work is the burnout. And sometimes you don't actually uh, feel that you have that burnout because you're so excited to do your work every single day, like 24-7. And like at some point there's that miscorrelation between your brain and like your excitement. And then like, you don't know, you don't, feel that your brain is actually tired and you need a break. So we were wondering whether you could, whether you've ever experienced something like a burnout and how do you manage it in your life to, you know, balance that? For sure. I think, I mean, I take on so many projects and there's so many cool collaborations and there's so many, can you just check this? And why don't we try doing this? And then you read something and you're like, oh, I've got this great idea for the next thing that obviously at the end of the week or sometimes midweek or sometimes on the weekend, you're like, ah, I can't take it. Like, I don't know who I'm supposed to email. I don't know what I'm supposed to be replying to. And I think that I managed to moderate it or like keep myself afloat by by doing different things as well. So so obviously I I think that taking time out of the lab and taking time away from your desk is super super important. I think sports has been a really good way for me to be able to just separate myself, you know, no one can ask you to go and check a Raman spectrum if you're out running, you know, 20 kilometers from where from where your lab is. No one can even email you if you're swimming. You can't get any of those messages when you're in the pool. So I feel like I use I use I use sport as a way to really clear my head. And it's been so useful during the pandemic. You know, if I'm getting nervous about a response to reviewers or if I'm kind of trying to work out the shape of a paper or if I'm getting anxious about giving a presentation, taking my mind entirely off science and entirely away from my desk and going out somewhere where you can really kind of free your thoughts and think creatively. And then and then kind of I always keep a little to do list on my phone of things to correct when I get back. So I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll move slide four to slide eight or something like that. You know, you keep thinking about things, but your head is free to to clear it. But also having friends who aren't scientists or aren't in academia really, really helps. I think it kind of contextualizes all the stresses and the big issues that we're having. And and luckily my kind of friends from high school and growing up are working in such cool and interesting, <laughs> interesting job areas. Every time I feel like something is massively important and this is so terrible and take it and and you go and talk to them and you're like actually this is super minor like this is something you know this is affecting such a small you know this is such a tiny thing and and I think that 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 has been really useful and and you know I have a fantastic brother and mum and dad who are just super supportive of 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 anything so if I go to them to moan about you know a really mean peer review interaction or some professor who said something terrible again on Twitter, they're just like, calm down, let's talk about something else. Let's focus on something else. So I think definitely family 
separating yourself by having hobbies and that could be cooking or sport or writing wikipedia pages which is another big one of mine but also having friends who aren't scientists really helped other than when it was kind of early days in the pandemic i was so enthusiastic and keen to have gotten back into the lab and i was like so like oh yeah and i've done all these amazing measurements and i was on the phone to my friend who's an actor and i was like i finally got to go to surrey to play with a massive magnet and he was like, oh, cool. I'm going to the Dominican Republic next week to film this film with like Brad Pitt. <laughs> so you're kind of like, okay, different worlds. But but yeah, I definitely, you know, having having life outside the lab is, is what gets you out of being burnt out. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think for me, it was, uh, you know, a big, a big part of the past year as well, finding, you know, things to do outside the lab. For me, it's like cooking and, you know, uh, like you said, having someone outside of that bubble of academia. So my partner, she's uh, an optometrist, soon to be a primary school teacher. And like, it's nice to just chat about stuff, you know, not like worrying about like judgment and stuff that you could have in academia from some people. For sure. So I think that's, that's definitely good. Her primary teaching will include a lot of science, I'm guessing, Henry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That'll be uh, that'll be uh, that'll be my job to kind of help with that. I think. <laughs> yeah. So something you touched on there actually was the Wikipedia work you've done, and kind of we we're wondering what got you first interested in writing and editing those, and then obviously doing the five hundred women um, scientist project as well alongside that. Just wondered if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I should I should start by saying five hundred women scientists is an international network of of women, but also people from other historically marginalized groups who kind of come together to honor and champion the work of women scientists and and as much as i'd love to take full credit for it because i think it's absolutely phenomenal i had nothing to do with its inception so it was a bunch of really extraordinary researchers in the states who after after the results of a certain presidential election got pretty bummed out and frightened about the kind of future particularly of those who've been kind of overlooked mm -hmm and came together and, and have since developed an incredible platform for connecting women scientists, really extraordinary resources. They have funding, they have fellowships, they they have, you know, they're a nonprofit now. And I think that my interactions with them has have just been to kind of amplify and to 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 serve. So I don't I don't want to take any credit <laughs> for that. But Wikipedia was I guess I stumbled on Wikipedia. You know, I've used it my entire well not my entire life. It's only 20 years old this year. But I've used it since the early days of Wikipedia. I think I probably remember it coming online when I was at high school or becoming a bigger thing when I was at high school. And then, you know, throughout my undergrad and then and then well, ever since then, I've used it as this go to place to get information. And I've just kind of always naively trusted that everything's important is on there and that everything on there is is written in this kind of neutral and impartial way and probably by people who know a lot better than I. And I've kind of simultaneously been working on projects to kind of try and improve the representation and recognition of women and minorities in science for a really long time. You know, I, I, I finished actually, I went to art school after high school and then I got into the physics department at Imperial and it was overwhelmingly male dominated, overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly privileged. And I kind of hadn't been anywhere near ready for that to happen. And so I kind of got on with it because, you know, it's actually quite hard when you're when you go in, when you when you've had a little bit of time in art school, a little bit of time in Italy doing Renaissance art and you go into 
a physics department and everyone's brilliant and everyone remembers all of uh, the maths and everyone remembers and you're just like okay i'm going to remember differentiation so so in the beginning i was i was not dedicating a huge amount of time to outreach and equity but progressively throughout my kind of training it became something that was really important to me to get right and so i'd been doing all of these kind of outreach events and public engagement activities and then i thought like the stories that I now have amassed about extraordinary scientists and the people I've learned about. You know, both of you will have experienced that every time people say, oh, we just don't have enough role models. There aren't enough role models. And I think there absolutely are enough role models. There are so many exemplary black scientists, LGBTQ plus scientists, scientists from the global South that we just don't talk and celebrate enough. And so I was kind of thinking about all these people that I used and I spoke about when I went out into these high schools or when I worked with teachers and parents. And then and then I found out about Wikipedia not being this, you know, extraordinarily comprehensive encyclopedia as I once thought that actually it was created by people. It was created by a pretty homogeneous group of people, the majority of which are white men in North America and had massive content gaps. So kind of hand in hand, I was thinking we need to do more online outreach. We need to do more storytelling on platforms that people are consuming. It's all it's all well and good me going and giving a lecture in front of, you know, 30 kids during lunchtime, but they're probably not going to remember me at any time. It's significant in their education decisions and it's only 30 kids, whereas Wikipedia gets about 15 billion views a month. So so I, I started at the beginning of 2018. And frankly, I've surprised myself by how I haven't given up. So I've been writing one Wikipedia page every single day about women and people of color and LGBTQ plus scientists and engineers. And yeah, it's been really extraordinary. I've just I've just surpassed 1400, which is so cool. Wow. Yeah, I know. I keep saying to my mum, come on, like buy me a cake or something. Such a time (laughs) to celebrate. (laughs) But but yeah, it's 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 it's. But I guess the phenomenal thing is, A, that these people weren't written about in the first place. You know, they're so extraordinary and so accomplished, but also that every single day you learn something new. And that's kind of what I love about being a scientist. And then I have that in the lab in the day. I have that, you know, speaking to my colleagues in the day. And then in the evening when I write these Wikipedia pages, I get that kind of, whoa, like neuroscience is amazing psychology is fantastic and and i love that so so i'm really privileged to do it wow that's I mean, that's amazing i mean is there anybody who you haven't yet been able to write a wikipedia page on that you kind of want to who, who's kind of your next next person you'd like to do it's, that's such a good question actually i've just been going through and this is chemistry related everyone so <laughs> so angavante if you all remember last summer there was that whole scandal when angavante published that yeah. ridiculous article about organic synthesis that was very well it was just absurd and and in the past couple of weeks they've appointed an entirely new international advisory board who were all just really cool like they've obviously worked really hard to make sure that they've identified like super cool chemists all over the world so i've been making my way systematically through that list to make sure that they're all on wikipedia because because i think that kind of service role in in academia is usually really overlooked you know being on those advisory boards and panels is a lot of work so and also they're just super cool people as mentioned so so that's what i've been working on lately but there are so many people henry who who i want to write about but Wikipedia has kind of notability criteria for who you can and can't write about. It's a general interest encyclopedia after all. 
and and those notability criteria are things like number of grants won number of papers published number of big awards brought in and we know as scientists that those are biased towards particular types of scientists like we know that white men from western speaking countries are more likely to to be successful in those areas so that's why there's this huge bias on wikipedia coupled with the lack of diversity in the editors but it makes it so that every time i kind of sit down i'm like oh this person is awesome or like their research is awesome but they haven't won enough awards yet like they haven't got enough big papers out yet because the system is broken so there's so many people who i'd like to write about who i just feel like you know i have a i have a ton of bookmarks of people whose pages i need to make and then also you know people whose pages i'm going to need to make in five years <laughs> when we've got so many brilliant people working in an area we need to shout about them like we really need to tell these stories because what's on wikipedia gets into textbooks like it gets into high school textbooks what's on wikipedia is what high school science teachers use when they're putting together, you know, those kind of poster walls they have in their classroom or what kids use when they're doing science projects. And and remarkably, I had no idea about this kind of, you know, huge international interaction Wikipedia with our lives, but journalists use it when they're gonna go on air to talk about something or if they're trying to book an expert to come on, like it, it secretly, silently intersects with so many aspects of our society that having those stories there is really, really crucial. You know, when you're watching the news and they're like, oh, we've got this other vaccine or like this terrible thing is happening and no one's wearing face masks. When you look up the expert who's come on air and you see they have a Wikipedia page, you're like, oh yeah, they, that's like, they, they've got credentials. Like I trust that now. And, and I think it's been really important for me to make sure all of those people, all of those experts have Wikipedia pages. So it's kind of like, you want to put the experts on a platform so that other people can find it and use it for their resources, but also so that when we, the general public are sitting down watching something and you do that kind of cheeky search on your favorite search engine, you can find out exactly who that person is and feel reassured that they were, you know, they have the cred that they say they did. That's amazing. I think, you know what you do if you can't get someone on Wikipedia because of their notability or not, you can just make your own Wikipedia. Uh, I think, you know, Wadepedia maybe, I don't know. Just uh, Wadepedia. <laughs> for the idea out there, you heard it here first, you know. I think, I think my dad would like that very much. He's currently quite upset because some very kind person a while ago made me a Wikipedia page, even though it was unnecessary. I did not ask for it. But they've put my mum's name on there and not my dad's. Oh. So it says who my mum is, but not and I think I think if we if we made a new encyclopedia called Wadepedia of all the awesome graduate students and early career researchers, then then yeah, that he'd be he'd be proud. Everything I've achieved in my in my short time here on the world, he's just thought, that's all right. But Wadepedia would <laughs> would make him smile. <laughs> So let's transition slightly. So every episode, if, you, if you've listened to one, Jess, we have a random question. And our random question for you today is kind of what was your favourite school subject? Oh, that's such a good random question. My favourite school subject was definitely art. I think, you know, throughout when I was at primary school, we had this strange, but now in retrospect, perfect situation where we'd have art one week and then science the next week, next week, and they'd be kind of oscillating between the two. I can't remember if we had the same teacher for both, but it really showed you even from the age of five, 
how inter intermixed art and science were, how that kind of creativity that you're taught so much and celebrated so much for in art is essential for succeeding as a scientist. You know, we don't get told what to do. We don't know what's going to happen in our experiments. We don't, we, you know, we can't predict what the applications of something will be, but the training you get in art to think creatively and to start having that imagination is so important for that. And so, so yeah, definitely through primary school was art. And then, and then when I was in secondary school, I think it was just because all the really cool kids were doing art and I'd see them coming into assembly and they'd have like their sketchbooks or something really cool drawn on their school shirt. And I was like, I've got to be like that one day. And obviously I've never become that cool in my entire life, but I really enjoyed doing art. I'm not sure Medina where you did your high school training, but in the UK we have real restrictions on what we can study when we go through high school so when you kind of in your final two years of high school when you're making all of those really big decisions about what you're going to do with the rest of your life we're only allowed to study four subjects which is completely absurd right so if you want to do medicine then you have to have chemistry you pretty much have to have biology and maths so that means that three out of the four subjects that are the only things you'll do for two years are already decided. For physics, you have to have physics, you have to have maths, you probably have to have an advanced maths. So art, art during that time, and also chemistry. <laughs> art, art was what kind of kept you, kept me just super happy. When, when everything felt like it was, you know, so specific and targeted to what you thought you wanted to do at university. Art was that kind of creative outlet. And, and yeah, I think it was, it was definitely, it still is important for me, art. It's really weird how you said like the, for two years, like they expect you to figure out your entire future career at like 15, 15 years old. At 15 years That's old. That's really crazy. Pretty, pretty much. And it means yeah. that it kind of embeds privilege, right? Because if your parents are scientists or doctors or engineers, then you're much more likely to know about it by the age of 15. Or if you live near a university, or if you, you go to science museums on the weekend, or if you like watch David Attenborough documentaries, you'll be thinking in a really different way when you're 15 to people who've never had those experiences, even though you could both go on to become kind of formidable sciences, scientists. So I do think, you know, for so many reasons, the UK education system is really limiting, but making people decide before they've even really worked out who they are seems incredibly backwards to me. I, I, I agree. And I do think in, especially when it gets to university as well, that the US system, the liberal arts system, I think where you're able to choose quite a few different subjects, it's a lot better than... Yeah, but you have to be a millionaire, Henry. Don't oh, have any ideas true. about going uh -huh. to university in yeah. America. You have to be like, <laughs> have an endowment. That's, that's true. <laughs> I don't understand how anyone does it. Sorry, Medina, you, you might be able to tell us, how does anyone afford American university? Yeah, I would say for undergrad, it's almost impossible unless you're very, very rich um, and or like extremely genius and have like crazy scores and thousand different exams that you took. But so I did my undergrad in Canada and I got just extremely lucky with the the governmental scholarship from back home because the scholarship ended in 2015 like after my year so if I waited for another year it's a crazy story like everything happened in like five days uh, and everyone's like why did you choose that university I'm like I think it's the university that chose me because it's just like it was a very random experience in in the grad school it's they they pay you so it's it's great so <laughs>
Oh no, so we get paid for grad school, but you can't yeah. get to grad school until you've done an undergrad. But, but I think there are a lot of good options in, in Germany and Europe. But you shouldn't have to, like, of course there are good options. Yeah. But I think some kind of rate limiting step to us having more diversity in the sciences is that not everyone can travel. Not everyone wants to leave their families. Some people have caring responsibilities. Some people can't just drop it all because you get a sword when you finish your PhD in Sweden or whatever. Like, I think that, I think, you know, that's something I've always found really bizarre about science as a career, that it's very much built on this idea that you have to be able to drop everything immediately and take a short-term contract somewhere. And not everyone is okay doing that. And that's okay that they're not okay doing that. And I think it's, yeah, it's another really backwards thing because it, I guess it comes from a time when you couldn't, easily connect on zoom to someone instantly in another part of the world you know when i've done kind of remote beam time sessions and you're connecting to california or to oxford or wherever you are that was a completely different time in science when you couldn't do that and you had to travel physically to those places and i think so much of kind of science and education is built on this really old school idea that we can't just hop online now and yeah. and and as a result you 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 see people who don't want to make that jump or don't want to stop their life leaving because they go into professions where they don't have to 100 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no i think that like this topic i can talk about this topic like for hours because like the i i used to get so frustrated like in my application that like everything is not free and like the way how they like quote treat international students and how you know like you need to be extremely extremely successful and just like to to be at the level of like not even at the level of an american but like at, at the level of an average american you have to be like extremely but but it's still not the same like it's just it's just so different and frustrating and the fact that you need to pay for your education as an undergraduate it's it's very yeah it's maybe not maybe now america has a new president he seems to be more but it won't change for international students you're right because that's how universities make money. I was going to say same here in the UK now with, um, you know, Brexit. Um, you know, that's uh, a major issue for students want to come over to study at UK universities. Yeah, I don't know if you knew know Medina about the ins and outs of our terrible government, but in this kind of terrible political decision to leave the European Union, we've now made it mandatory for European students to pay international student fees which are kind of four times what UK students and EU students used to pay, which means that overnight you've gone from paying, you know, equivalent to what UK students fees pay, students pay, which is, you know, eight, 9,000 a year to, to 30,000, 30, whatever, plus thousand. And, and obviously it completely changes the demographics of who thinks they can come to the UK to study or to live or to work. And I, I think it's going to be absolutely terrible for science in this country or for all of university subjects in this country, actually. But really, science benefits so much from kind of international cooperation and diversity of ideas to have done this to students just seems so short-sighted. Not, not only to students, like to themselves, right? Like, as you mentioned, like the science is going to suffer from this. So much. I can't ever, I can't think of a single interesting collaboration i've been on where the team of people doing it weren't international like weren't international and diverse like i don't think i've ever been in a team that hasn't had people from different parts of the world and especially working at universities like imperial 
everyone is international every single class every single conversation you have is with people from who didn't grow up in in the uk and and i can't imagine science without that so to make people pay a, a prohibitively large amount of money whether that's just to apply or to attend feels like science will suffer pretty quickly as a result of it for sure for sure any any government listening just yeah try and ch try and change it if you can <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah, change your ways. You've run the country. Don't ruin science in the UK, please. So I think that's I think that was a really interesting discussion around like obviously uh, lack lack of opportunity for some people and kind of lack of diversity as well. And I guess um, obviously you were awarded back in 2019 with the British Empire Medal. I mean that's a massive accolade and congratulations on that. Um, we just want to know kind of how it made you feel because it obviously is a big thing to be kind of celebrated for your work in diversity and, and just wondered kind of how you reacted when you received that news. Yeah, it came, comes as a letter. I mean, I had no idea that these kind of awards or honours even existed and I'm obviously part of the part of the population who thinks that we should get rid of words like imperial and empire and things like that because they're such a horrible part of, of British history. But I also think that getting recognition for something that's so important is, is quite a cool thing to have. It comes as a kind of letter in the mail and it said Dr. J. Wade on the front. And Dr. J. Wade is also my dad, who's who's John Wade, for, for all the listeners out there who care a lot about neurology. So he opened it and started reading it. And and I think the pronouns were like she, her, or you know, something about it was something that that made it quite obvious it wasn't it for him. So it was like, oh, your mother must have had an honor. So it was like, oh, dad's had an honor for his longtime service to the NHS. Oh, mum must have had it for her service to the NHS. And it really it only dawned on us after about five minutes that it was actually for me. And so so at first it just made me feel very um surprised and also embarrassed for dad for thinking it was him by default but but actually you know it it was it, it's fun i mean it's 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 a really great thing to have happened but all literally anything that i've achieved or or been awarded i feel like my responsibility is to make that up and get that for someone else so 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 a lot of the time i spend when i'm not writing wikipedia pages is is writing awards and nominations and honors things for other people and because i really want other people to be recognized for the work that they do so so i i actually get really embarrassed about things like that i hate talking about it i hate that moment when people are introducing you at conferences and they read out your like terribly embarrassing biography i'm like Ugh! and and so my favorite thing in life is actually seeing other people get recognition so so you know it goes very quickly from being like oh this is nice to oh gosh why did they choose me to i think i need to sit down and write someone else's citation now <laughs> yeah because you it makes you so much happier so happy like i honestly can't believe it so so one of the my well actually by far and remove my favorite the best wikipedia page i ever wrote was about a woman called gladys west and she's a african-american mathematician and she was born in 1930 so she's like 90 years old now and she studied maths at a historically black college and university and ended up working for the u.s government on the development of gps 
And when I wrote her Wikipedia page in 2018, there was so little about her online, you could really find nothing. And then the BBC made her their top 100 women a few months later. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So that was like May 2018. And then later that year, the US Air Force inducted her to their Hall of Fame. So she's like 89, 88, 89 then. And then all these incredible pictures of her like appeared online because governmental owned bodies take lots of photos that they put online and so you kind of slowly are learning more and more about her and then just two months ago now the royal academy of engineering in the uk gave her the prince philip medal she's the first woman ever to win the prince philip medal for her contributions to gps technology and honestly that whole day i was like everyone i met i was like did you know gladys west has just won the prince philip medal i was like buzzing around the room and i just can't like infinitely more happy than anything that happens to me to see her get that recognition especially at the age of 90 like during a pandemic to receive a medal where the royal family in the uk tweet about it i was just like this is the coolest thing so yeah it's so much more satisfying when you see other people succeed <laughs> yeah Definitely. especially if, if there are people in your in your circle and yeah they complain to you they you know what they suffered through and like they went through and then at the end you're like oh my god yes, yes. it's like I every time a graduate student gets their phd i'm like i am just you're just so overwhelmingly thrilled like obviously you think it's going to work out when they go into their defense or viva you don't think they're going to come out crying because no good supervisor would put them in a situation where they might but you see them coming out and you're just like, you know, whether it's their master's degree or their PhD, you're just so genuinely thrilled. And, and yeah, I love that. I love watching that happen. Yeah, no, for sure. So I guess one of the uh, philosophical questions that we had for today, you can approach it from different uh, angles. But uh, if you approach this question from the philosophical point of view, so what is the meaning of, of a great lab mate or, or a colleague for you? The meaning of a great lab mate or colleague? Yeah. Someone who is like first thought immediately into my head is someone who's non-judgmental. So I can go to them with all my really stupid questions and they can, no questions are stupid, Jess, you shouldn't say stupid questions. I can go to them with all of my naive questions or like, you know, nitpicking things to try and understand something. And they'll just sit down and kind of calmly take the time to explain it to you. You know, they don't get frustrated because, because you've not seen something quick enough or, you know, I always send, especially my chemistry colleagues, particularly a guy called Jochen, all of the chemical structures. And I'm like, how do you name this? Or like, how can you imagine this would be named? Because I've never learned that. And I think that some people would be judgmental that you don't have that kind of background knowledge. People who, who take the time to properly train you on something, I think is so important. So during my PhD, I had amazing kind of in, internal group mentor called Seb. And he really taught me like so many different things and took time out of what he was doing to make sure I understood things. So definitely kind of non-judgmental, really keen to, to train you on things, but also just, I guess the most important thing is that they're collaborative and they recognize the work is done by a team and not just by an individual. And I think, you know, everyone listening and certainly you both will know people who really don't think like that. And you, you kind of go through your scientific life seeing people who who put themselves first and who put themselves first on author lists and in lab meetings and speak the loudest and you think like huh i never want to be like that and i guess my ideal 
lab mate is the opposite of that is someone who kind of will obviously advocate for their own ideas and speak up where necessary but doesn't have to be the only one all the time like recognizes that really good science is done by teams of people and not by individuals well when you asked that question i was like what am i going to say but now i have so many <laughs> thoughts about oh i guess another really important one like keeps things tidy like doesn't leave all their stuff out in the lab all the time or take things from your box or your drawer and not put them back or like be you know those kind of people i just think like you were not made to work in a team and and that's really really hard to do and i work in a bunch of shared labs so if someone's moved like the super important someone's left the oxygen on and the oxygen's run out or someone's left the nitrogen on and the nitrogen's run out or someone's taken the substrates that you left and you'd prepared and you'd cleaned. I just think, <gasps> so, so yeah, <laughs> I think I've learned a lot from looking at bad lab practice to know what I'd really want. But, but I guess also ultimately people who recognize that we're human and that you can have a day when, when you're not completely on it, when you've had massive challenges to, to your mental health, when something's gone wrong at home, and you may not be good to present in a group meeting, you may not be happy to go out and have to, you know, put together the figures for a paper. And I think people who recognize that you need to take time to be you as such extraordinary things to come across in science, you've got to hold on to them. For sure. I think, you know, that comes down not to just individual people, colleagues, but, you know, a culture of supportive collaborative workmanship, which, you know, some research groups will have, others won't. So just trying to navigate towards those that do and kind of stick with them, like you say. I saw a really good presentation by someone who was saying that, you know, your supervisor may not have everything you want in a supervisor. Your supervisor may not have all the attributes you want. Your kind of trainee, postdoc, whoever's helping you when you join the lab may not be the perfect person. But what you can do as a scientist when you're kind of starting out is kind of take the best parts of the people you see like take that kind of, you know, maybe you open up someone's comments on your first draft of a paper and you're just kind of like terrified and overwhelmed by how many comments they've made or questions they've made, but that shows they care and that shows they've put the time in to try and correct it to get it better. That really is like a sign of academic love, I think. And when you start to look at the good points that you could find in people and just kind of collect those up and it, oh gosh, it sounds so kind of silly and sentimental, but collect all of the good things that you see in, in the senior people around you and then take that. And whether that's just being, you know, attention to detail or, their naming convention for the data that they generate, like collect all those little examples of good things, because we won't all land in a lab which has a really supportive PI. Like we, it, it, there's no physical way because unsupportive PIs get given a lot of money. So, so you might be doing a, a PhD in a group where people aren't very nice, but you can go out and you can, you know, during the pandemic and, and even this podcast has shown that you can network with people way beyond your immediate circle and just pick those things that that you want to emulate yourself as a grown up scientist. And I feel that I feel that very strongly. Yeah. And as I always like to say, like you're a human first. Right. So small things like you know, leaving a cookie on, on your lab mate's table when they have a bad day or, or something like, I don't know. Not an optical table, no. though. Not a cookie in the <laughs> no, lab. No, 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 no. Like, the, <laughs> no. <laughs> like their study desk or, I don't know, just uh, taking care of the reaction while they have to leave early. It's like, you know, small things. They just can make your, your entire day. Yeah, and, and noticing when people aren't speaking in group meetings. I think, you know, when you feel... 
and I felt this so much during my PhD and even now in the group like I've got questions to say but it's a bit it's a bit silly and and everyone will think I'm silly if I ask it or you know it people who notice that you've been quiet for a really long time or people who notice that when you've said an idea and someone else has initially dismissed it but then go on to claim it their own and someone who steps in and said hey no Medina said that already or someone else like you know Henry proposed this I think they're the kind of people that you've got to keep around in the lab and actually I think we we can all do better to be that person and we we, we need more of them in science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, 100%. Like I, I might confess that I'm always the one who like speaks a lot in the in the group meetings, but I think one of- <laughs> That does surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like I would, and I was really, really not happy with it because I was like, no, I'm not, maybe I'm like not letting someone to speak because I just can't stop talking and then I would so one of the things that I learned was a 10 second rule that so Rose my my PI so I I talked to her about it and she really helped me to to suggest that this is an alternative so I would always count in my head 10 seconds before I speak because I hate awkward silences but then I would go through that 10 seconds and I was like just okay last question I can ask my question so it, it really helps I think I'm going to have to start doing this. I'm always the person who like butts in and I'm like, get, you know, way, way more airtime than other people because I can't shut up. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take this yep, on. 10 second rule. Quite funny. I'm the, I'm the complete opposite. I've never, I've not heard a 10 second rule, but I'm yeah the last person to kind of say an idea. We've got to give Henry the, the 10 picosecond rule. Like he yeah, has to go. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that's really good, I guess, to finish. We, I, well, I did have one little bit that I wanted to let you kind of plug if you wanted to. Your book, Nano, that I think is supposed to come out later this year. Just wondered if you wanted to talk to the audience about that just briefly. Yeah, so uh, thank you for bringing it up, Henry. I'm a really bad self-publicist, but me and an incredible um, illustrator called Melissa Castrion have written a children's book about nanoscience and and materials and chemistry. And it's kind of introducing young people to, to science and the extraordinary worlds that we all work in. And I think the thing that I really wanted to try and do with it, and I hope I have done, is that it's much more focused on kind of the scientific method and getting things wrong and that we make dis- mistakes and have discoveries. It's not a kind of list of facts about graphene and carbon nanotubes. So, so yeah, it's, it's a children's book. It's probably for people. I mean, I have no gauge of what kids can read, but probably over, which I should do, right. It's a children's book. Over, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think over six, technically it's like kind of six to eight, that kind of age, but anyone who's young and who's enthusiastic, my brother's girlfriend, who's definitely not that young, learned a huge amount reading it. She read it for about an hour and a half and then said, Jess, I really understand what you do now. It's out in the UK. So it came out in April. It's out in the States in September. It's also coming out in Italian. It's in French and crucial language. It's coming out in Estonian. Wow. Cool. That is really cool. So, That's so awesome. yeah. And, and you know, I, I think it's great. I think it's great because introducing young people to science in in picture books is such a cool way to show them and their parents and their teachers how much fun we're having in science and how kind of diverse and interdisciplinary the areas that we're working in are without us having to to go in and speak to them ourselves you know you can tell those stories and kind of ignite their imagination through that so i felt super lucky to have been able to write it i luckily managed to find this extraordinary illustrator who's just you know her, her illustrations are so beautiful 
So, so even if you buy it for the illustrations alone, do that. I think I'm going to pop on Amazon after this and grab a copy because I don't know much about nanoscience. So no, go to an independent bookshop. Independent bookshop. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll pop down to what Waterstones just down the road, so I'll pop down there. And uh... okay, that's better, but it's still not independent. So find this. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. It might become the new hungry caterpillar. You know, bedtime reading about. I mean, that's that's what they're that's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. It's going to become the next very hungry caterpillar. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, I guess uh, let's finish up here. And I guess, Jess, if people want to contact you, what's the best way they can get in touch? Probably on Twitter. I'm just at Jess Wade, J-E-S-S-W-A-D-E. Brilliant. Just want to say thank you again for joining us today. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can at Ken Combo's Pod. And yeah, have a great day. See ya. Bye.